stretch across the sky these hallelujahs be multiplied God of mercy sweet love of mine I have surrendered to
We've gathered together today in the presence of God and in the sight of all these witnesses to unite Andrew Nehemiah Lancaster and Aurora Irene Livingston in the sacred covenant of marriage. On behalf of my family and the Livingston family, I want to thank all of you, not only for the grace of your presence here this evening, but for all the generous gifts and your cheerful service that contributed to making this joyous occasion possible. And even beyond all that, I'm mindful tonight of the lifelong friendships and the countless expressions of care over the years that have shaped the lives of this young couple. As my father-in-law would say, they've been loved into loving. So they're indebted to you, and as their grateful parents, so are we. Thank you. Andrew and Aurora, I trust you're well aware that the choice you're daring to make today is no longer popular in America. Over the past 50 years, the marriage rate in the U.S. has dropped by nearly 60%. Considering that more than half of all marriages now end in divorce, it's easy to see at least one reason why so many are opting out altogether. Simply put, if you follow the science, the choice you two are making today is a bad idea. In a culture often referred to as liquid modernity, people have become terrified of commitment, fearing the pain that ensues when their investment is tragically lost in the next wave of change. They're just not sure it's worth the risk. Those who still dare to pursue marriage often seek to mitigate the risk by turning to modern tools, such as apps or dating services, that apply compatibility metrics, personality profiles, shared interest charts, and the like, to find good matches. But the proof is in the pudding. None of these attempts to engineer successful relationships through psychology or algorithms have managed to reverse the downward spiral of failed marriage statistics. I'm sure there are still those who maintain faith that AI will eventually solve the problem. But the two of you have invested your hopes and your future in an entirely different approach and way of life. In fact, for many decades now, our entire church community has made a very deliberate effort not to follow modern methods for initiating romantic relationships. When the ancients were asked what God has been doing since the creation, they would respond, arranging marriages. We've dared to believe that, trusting that God has a better view of what's best for us than we do, and that the promptings of his spirit are far better guideposts 
than rational calculations, fickle emotions, or hormones. So we've unapologetically chosen to abandon the dating scene altogether, admonishing our young singles to not even hint at their feelings for one another until God has been allowed to confirm his will in his time. And for three generations now, we've been very happy with the fruit. Your story has been no exception. Andrew, as you approached adulthood, you and I had discussed the topic of marriage several times as you reached to ascertain God's plan for you. You had some wonderings and some feelings, but nothing solid or clear. Then last year, a remarkable sequence of events unfolded. About a week before our community's annual Easter concert, you had a dream. In the dream, you were attending the concert, and you were listening to me share a story about Gene Forster, an old rancher neighbor of our Montana community. When you awoke, you dismissed this as a ridiculous notion. You didn't think of your dream again until a few days later, when I did something I'd never done before. At the family dinner table, I asked all of you kids if anybody had any ideas or feelings about what I could share as an opening message at the upcoming concert. It was only a few days away, and I had not yet received an inspiration for the introduction. You said that actually you had recently had a dream about that very thing, but by then, you couldn't remember what I was sharing about. In any case, you said you remembered that when you awoke, you dismissed it as an inappropriate message, so it probably didn't matter. I observed that that was entirely unhelpful. (laughs) But I asked that if you ever remembered what it was to please tell me. Shortly after that, unbeknownst to you, I felt like I had an inspiration. I would share a story about Gene Forster at the concert. Saturday night, after the concert, you were visibly shaken as you told me that your dream had been exactly replayed at the concert as I had shared precisely the same story that you now clearly remembered from your dream. What did that mean, you wanted to know? Why did that happen? I told you then that sometimes when a dream like that comes true, It's to alert us to something else God wants to speak to us, perhaps through another dream. I shared an example of a time when that scenario had happened to your mom. A seemingly innocuous dream came true, followed by a dream of much greater consequence. Well, only much later did I learn that that night you had another dream. In the dream, you were about to get engaged to Aurora Livingston a young lady who had somewhat recently moved down from Colorado, whom you hardly knew at the time. In your dream, you were a bit unnerved by this momentous realization, and when you awoke, you were a little dubious and nervous about it. In fact, it was quite some time before you found the courage to tell me about this. In the meantime, the following day, Easter Sunday, Aurora was baptized committing her life to Jesus. When we got home from the baptism, your mom told me privately that she had had what she called a burning bush experience when Aurora was baptized. 
Though neither of us knew yet of your dream the night before, and mom had barely even met Aurora, she told me she felt like God had shown her that you and Aurora would someday marry. Neither of us shared that feeling with you or anyone else at the time. We simply committed it to prayer. Many months later, you came to me and told me you had prayed to a certainty that God was speaking to you to marry Aurora. That same week, another church member called us out of the blue to say that she had told her husband during Aurora's baptism, months before, that she had a strong impression from the Lord that Aurora was going to marry Andrew Lancaster. She had never shared it with another soul until then, but she felt impressed that it was time to tell us her feelings. Unbeknownst to any of us, another church member shared the same feeling with their minister during that same week. Now, to be clear, I don't believe a dream or a word from someone else can ultimately substitute for having a personal conviction that you've heard the voice of the Lord directly for yourself and that you're truly in love with someone. So we didn't share any of these confirmations with you, Andrew, until after you had expressed after much prayer your certainty that Aurora was the one for you. But it was a great comfort to all of us to see how many ways the Lord seemed to be confirming his plan. So then it remained to be seen if Aurora would also independently feel the same leading. A while later, we found out that she did. So here we are. Aurora, though I didn't know you well until the engagement, you've had my respect since the time of your decision to leave behind your promising, comfortable life in beautiful Colorado and move down here to the furnace of Central Texas <laughs> in response to what you believed was God's call on your life to deeper relationship with him and with our church fellowship. But you really won my heart when I later learned that one of the things that had first drawn you towards Andrew was the fact that he drove a beat-up 12-year-old Toyota Prius. <laughs> this resonated with my personal penchant for budget economy. That used to be my car. But even more, I appreciated what it said about your priorities. You weren't looking for the richest guy on the block. That's a good thing, Andrew. Yes, I'm happy to say that I believe both of you have had your eyes and hearts fixed on a higher purpose than your own gratification or aggrandizement. And that attitude has now led you to this altar today, believing as you do that this union is not just your choosing, but was first God's choosing. But this brings a question. If it is God who has joined you together, then for what purpose? Is it merely for your personal enjoyment and comfort? Is it just a convenient arrangement for feeding one another's selfish desires, a mutual backscratching? Or to put it in kinder terms, is the purpose of marriage primarily to accommodate your pursuit of happiness? Holocaust survivor and psychologist Viktor Frankl famously claimed that happiness cannot successfully be pursued. It can only ensue. Meaning and purpose must be pursued, he said, 
and happiness will follow. I agree with that. And so, while I believe God wants you to be happy, I propose that his primary purpose in your union is to radically transform you from the inside out. He wants to reshape you into more effective vessels of love, the contours of which you yourselves can't even fully anticipate or comprehend, even at this moment. And since, according to the scriptures, God himself is love, this is another way of saying that he intends to use your marriage to transform you into his image. I've often said that when I got married, I expected to discover things about Amanda that I'd never seen or known before, and that did indeed happen. But what really surprised me was how immediately I began to discover dimensions of myself that were radically different than the person I'd always pictured myself to be. For one thing, I was a lot sillier than I thought I was. You see, something internal happens in such a close relationship that just can't be predicted based on your prior experience as an individual. This calls to mind an incident that happened when I was a teenager, just learning to play various musical instruments. My family had recently come to this community and several of the guys my age would play their instruments together at community gatherings. I had undertaken to learn the harmonica. That's my budget economy coming through again. Grand piano, harmonica, harmonica. And I practiced diligently at home until I was certain that I was highly competent to play a solo on a particular tune that the guys frequently played. So the next time we were together, I casually mentioned that I could play a solo on that tune if you like. I knew they were gonna be really impressed with my proficiency and skill. But when the big moment came and it was my turn to take the lead, I got completely lost and botched the whole thing. My self-referencing bubble had burst. I was learning the hard lesson that every aspiring group musician quickly encounters, that playing in sync with other musicians is an entirely different animal than playing by yourself. Like a marriage, it's multidimensional. There's timing, volume, tone, pitch, and all of it requires constant attention and real-time adjustment to fit your part with the others. You can't stay centered in what you're doing, your style or interpretation. You have to get centered in the song itself and stay ever conscious of the other players who may also be learning. Because if you don't harmonize with each other, the song dies. The only way I know of to develop your capacity to play with a band is to take that heart-stopping leap into the song and learn by doing. And that leap is humbling. It's bubble-bursting. It can even be a little frightening. Something inside you has to be so convinced of the reward on the other side, so determined to know the joy of being in the song that you take the plunge. I felt that feeling when I stood at the marriage altar 26 years ago. And I felt it many times before and since. In fact, it sometimes seems to me as if my whole life has consisted of a series of such leaps into the unknown. 
from my first faltering attempts to respond to the presence of God, to receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit, to singing and speaking before thousands of people, to birthing our children at home, to helping my mom battle the cancer that took her in her 40s, to moving to a foreign country as a missionary and learning to preach in a foreign language, to raising a special needs child, to giving away my first daughter in marriage, that risky feeling of stretching my comfort zone to the breaking point has by now become at least recognizable to me, if not exactly familiar. And I've come to expect that greater love, greater joy, greater fulfillment are always there waiting, just on the other side of the boundary I had deemed safe. And now the two of you stand at one of these awe-inducing thresholds. There will be many more. When I consider the leaps of faith taken by your grandparents and others who've gone before you, those of my own life seem small by comparison. But every generation faces unique challenges in a changing world. Beginning with your marriage today, I urge you, don't avoid the challenges that call you outside yourselves. Embrace them. It is possible, I suppose, to simply go through the motions of a wedding and a marriage, attempting to reap its benefits while still stubbornly trying to maintain some level of autonomy and control. For some, marriage is viewed as a success if it simply manages to become a comfortable refuge of compromise, a haven of bland familiarity and habitual responses, never plumbing the depths of the soul. Conflicts are carefully sidestepped or ignored, and a slow fade of meaning and purpose is traded for the illusion of stability. At least we didn't divorce, people comfort themselves. I find it tragic how many people play it safe their whole lives, always afraid to really invest, too scared of the possibility of pain to become truly transparent, even in the small things. As T.S. Eliot said, you can measure out your life in coffee spoons, always conveniently deferring the most important questions to some undefined time in the future. It happens to couples. It can happen to whole communities. They grow stale and lukewarm, perhaps prosperous, comfortable, and content, but no longer out on the edge no longer immersed in the overwhelming song they were destined to play a part in. They've lost their first love. Even in our own church, with its remarkable near-perfect track record of lasting marriages, I sometimes find occasion to wonder if this or that couple has stalled out in the transformation process God intended for them, settling for business as usual but avoiding those leaps of change where new power and grace are found. So today I charge you to, God doesn't want you to merely survive your marriage as if the passing of time was itself the purpose. He desires instead that your marriage would further stretch you into the dynamic, ever-expanding vessels of his love that he created you to be. So don't fear the changes and adjustments. 
Fear instead that you might cease to change and thus abort the very purpose of your union. I love the way the author Mike Mason has described the purpose of marriage. He says marriage will become a relationship far more engrossing than you may have imagined or even perhaps thought you wanted. It always turns out to be more than we bargained for. It is disturbingly intense, disruptively involving, and that is exactly the way it was designed to be. It is supposed to be more almost than we can handle. It was meant to be a lifelong encounter that would be much more rigorous and demanding than anything human beings ever could have chosen, dreamed of, desired, or invented on their own. After all, we do not even choose to undergo such far-reaching encounters with our closest and dearest friends. Only marriage urges us into these deep and unknown waters. For that is its very purpose, to get us beyond our depth out of the shallows of our own secure egocentricity and into the dangerous and unpredictable depths of a real personal encounter, the very encounter that raises us up to that goal of becoming more than we thought we could be, the image and imprint of God. Mason continues, like God himself then, marriage comes with a built-in abhorrence of self-centeredness. In the utopias of humankind's complacent separateness, amidst all our pleasant fantasies of omnipotence and blamelessness and self-sufficiency, marriage explodes like a bomb. It runs an aggravating interference pattern, an unrelenting guerrilla warfare against selfishness. It attacks people's vanity and lonely pride in a way that few things can tirelessly exposing the necessity of giving and sharing, as well as the absurdity of blaming. Angering, humiliating, melting, chastening, purifying, it touches us where we hurt most, in the place of our lovelessness. Pulling us into a lifelong relationship that at times may be tense, unpleasant, or grievous, Marriage represents one of life's supreme challenges to live wholly and solely for love. Andrew, I first heard those words from your granddaddy as he ministered your mother's and my wedding ceremony. They've proven more true than I could have understood at the time. Marriage is indeed disturbingly intense. It's radically transformative and frighteningly wonderful. Your mother and I are, in the most profound ways, unrecognizable as the two young kids who began the journey. Marriage has pulled us out of the shallows. Sometimes as we lie in bed at night or as we walk in the evenings down the lane to the river, we ask each other, do you suppose other couples have ever known the depths of vulnerability and closeness, the absolute trust we share with each other? We count and recount our blessings. Sometimes we revisit the hard times, the painful, confusing times, the scary times along the way that called us to yet another risky leap of faith. And we always say the same thing. I'd do it all over again. 
I share none of this to suggest that people should undertake risk just for the thrill of it. I'm certainly not promoting a reckless, daredevil approach to relationships. Indeed, a love as dangerous and intrusive as I've been describing is an irresponsible experiment if undertaken out of context. It must have appropriate safeguards in place to protect it. My point is that those safeguards cannot be of your own making. Your tightly guarded emotions or carefully planned coping strategies. Love won't be preserved by the self-protective walls that you build between each other. You need a wall that encompasses you both and allows the fires of life to forge you into an inseparable unit. And that protective wall is the sacred covenant you're about to make. A covenant custom designed by the maker of love itself as the perfect form to shelter and nurture it. Within the safety of covenant, you can dare to risk ultimate vulnerability that you might discover ultimate purpose and the joy of living your life for love. Before we proceed to the vows, allow me to remind you of the words of the final song they sang earlier. Minutes turn to hours, days to years, then gone. But when all else has been forgotten, Still our song lives on. Andrew and Aurora, you only get one life to live. Give everything to keep the song alive. Today and tomorrow and through however many years or decades God gives you, you will have an ongoing choice. You can cling to your ego, guard your selfish expectations, and watch life strip away your love. Or, you can let life strip away your fantasies, shed your self-protecting fear and pride, and watch your love endure forever as it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and never fails. So never resort to going through the motions. Never acquiesce to a lukewarm existence. Never allow your natural habits of self-defense to win the day. Let every trial, every pain, every challenge turn into yet another occasion for love to come out ahead. If you get stuck, be honest with yourselves and with each other and reach out for help. Don't hide, don't stall out, don't settle for the path of least resistance and don't ever give up. You have a heritage to live up to, a legacy to fulfill. If you knew just how much hope and expectation some of us older ones are setting upon you and others of your generation, it might scare you. But we're here beside you, and we're full of faith that the same God who has called you together today will be with you for every unknown step ahead. And what a bright land is ahead of you. Eye has not seen, nor has ear heard, nor has entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him.